0: I did not write and take no credit for this story. Please visit the link in the comments to further support this author. This podcast is part of the Erotica Podcast Network. Support us on Patreon to make requests for subjects you would love to hear. Thank you to those who have already reached out. Building Utopia Part 2 by SWM Mohammed. Chapter 08 Nearly a month after they left for Florida the small group met two Spanish men. Margarita translated for Roger and conversed with them on her own as well. She told Roger they were from St. Augustine. The men knew some of Margarita's family and told her they were well. They gave her all the news they knew then after a few minutes moved on. They were on a reconnaissance mission for the governor and were not interested in tarrying. Before they left they assured Roger it was no more than a two-week trek from where they were to St. Augustine three weeks would complete the trip if they took it easy. Margarita was ecstatic that evening just from knowing her family was safe. She wanted nothing else but to hurry onward to see her family. To her credit, she curtailed her desires and allowed Roger to set the pace and make the plans for contact with the Spanish garrison. Two weeks to the day after meeting the Spanish men the small group arrived at Margarita's old home. It was only three days farther to St. Augustine. Roger did bow to Margarita's feelings, however, and they made their first stop near her family's holdings so she could visit before they pushed onward. The next two days were spent allowing Margarita to visit with her family and try to convince them to return to Birmingham with them. I In the late morning of the third day of their stay they were confronted by a detail of Spanish soldiers. Their leader was the son of the governor and was an extremely arrogant man. He tried to arrest the men for trespassing on crown lands. Thankfully, Roger made his camp about a mile from Margarita's home, so some of his men and the Indian women were there out of sight. Roger refused to allow the popinjay to arrest him. When he refused to submit to arrest, the officer ordered his men to attack. Roger expected that move and rapidly drew his pistol. He shot the governor's son, then, in rapid succession, the next two best dressed men in the detachment. By then, his men had their weapons leveled, as did Margarita. The remaining Spanish soldiers rapidly dropped their weapons and began shouting loudly. Margarita listened carefully then replied Another burst of talk came from the prisoners before Margarita turned to Roger Margarita looked worried as she began talking to Roger These men beg you to accept their surrender They beg you to let them go on their parole Roger I am afraid our mission here will only meet with limited success now though You have killed the governor's son and even if he would have been inclined to trade with you before he will not now In fact, if he can find you I expect him to mount an armed attack on our settlement in revenge for your actions. Because they stood by and let you do this my family is in danger as well. At least now I am sure they will come with us. The alternative is death or having to pay large reparations to the governor for allowing you to kill his son and get away. A good thing is they have several horses and other livestock we can take with us to increase our herds and flocks. One of my uncles is a skilled blacksmith and may be helpful to you in your manufacturing. The rest of the men are farmers and traders. Roger thought about his response for several minutes then called Margarita to him. He walked to the spokesman and said, with Margarita translating, I will release you on your parole. After we leave you are welcome to return to St. Augustine. If you try to leave before we do I will confine you once again if you live through our recapture. When you arrive back at St. Augustine please give the governor my condolences on the loss of his son. Make sure he knows, however, that his son's death was a direct result of his attack on me and my men while we were doing nothing to endanger him, his detachment, or the settlers of Florida. Also tell him we have returned home, and want nothing further to come of this. However, we will defend ourselves if the need arises. I am afraid I will have to hold you here for a short time until we are ready to return to our home. You will be treated well and not injured if you will give me your word you will not attempt to escape." It took two days for Margarita's family to pack their belongings and get ready to move. They stripped their homes and barns of everything that could possibly be of use to them in their new home. They left with Margarita in the direction of the camp that contained the balance of Roger's men and the Indian women and children. Roger and four of his men planned to remain at the farm where the prisoners were held for two more days before they departed. After the majority of Margarita's family departed, the prisoners began to talk among themselves. They seemed animated. Voices were raised in anger dot on the morning Roger intended to depart one of the prisoners came to him. In halting broken English the soldier said, Please, senor, may my friends and I come with you? We have failed in our duty and expect great punishment when we return to St. Augustine. In truth, all of us except the sergeant had no desire to even come here to the new world. He wants to return to St. Augustine but the rest of us would rather come with you. Two of us have women in St. Augustine we would like to bring with us if you would be kind enough to allow us to get them. Roger looked at the almost groveling man. He needed men and women desperately. His main thought was one of trust. Could he trust these men, these deserters? He decided to take a chance. I will allow you to accompany me. I will send two of my men with the two who want to get their women, but we will only wait five days for them to return. Tell them they need to leave immediately. If any of you cause trouble or break the rules, I will kill you immediately. Do I make myself clear? The man grinned and bobbed his head. He said, "See, sí, senor. Pedro, and I will leave whenever you say. Gracias. After the young man turned to find Pedro, Roger called two of his men over and instructed them to go with them. He told his men not to hesitate to kill if the need arose but to avoid it if at all possible. It was late on the fifth day when Roger and the remaining men heard and then saw a group of eleven men and women approaching the small house that had belonged to Margarita's family. Roger moved his men into a defensive position just in case there was trouble. He relaxed somewhat when he saw four of the people were his two men and the two soldiers that went off to find their women. Roger moved from his concealment to meet the small group. All four of the men that were returning looked guilty. The man Roger put in charge of the group came up to Roger. Roger said, I sent you after two women and their possessions. What are the rest of these people doing with you? The man blushed and looked down at the ground for a moment then said, Well, sir, when we got there Jorge's woman had her sister and family with her. It seems they were worried because the patrol was overdue. We didn't know what to do or say but we knew we had to hurry. I sent David and the other soldier off to get his woman while I stayed with Jorge to try and sort it out, sir. He swore Rosa's family to secrecy and told her she needed to pack because they had to leave immediately. Well, sir, her family didn't really like that and I thought they were going to be trouble. Then Jorge explained it to me. The family wasn't upset Rosa and Jorge were going to leave. They were upset because they wanted to come also and Jorge told them they couldn't come. The governor was trying to force Maria, Rosa's sister, to be his concubine. He was making things hard for the family, sir. I remembered how you said you wanted more settlers and they seemed like good folks so I sort of told them they could come too. Peter reached out and wrapped his arm around Maria's waist. He pulled her to his side and looked almost defiantly at Roger. He continued talking. On the way back Maria and I sort of came to an understanding. She's agreed to become my wife and we want to bring our new family back with us. Please, sir. Roger looked at the worried group of people arranged in a semi-circle in front of him and smiled. He said. Of course, you are all welcome to come with us. We will rest the remainder of the day and leave early tomorrow morning. That next morning the remaining prisoner was left tied up in one of the houses when the party left. He was tied loosely so he could escape fairly fast. Roger left him lightly tied so he and his group could have a slight head start in case the man wanted to follow. That would also allow them a greater head start on their getaway. It was a long, arduous trek back to their home with their new additions to the population. Luckily, they did not run into any other hostile people. About three weeks after they left the area around St. Augustine, Roger and his group came upon a small Indian village. This time they were received peacefully. Once again Sonny was able to communicate with the people in the village. Roger shot two deer for their evening meal and impressed the villagers with the range and rapid fire from his weapons. The tales Sonny told them of his abilities as a warrior, a provider, and a lover added to what they saw of him raised him almost to godlike status with the simple tribesmen. Of course, his actions that night in bed helped cement his status. All three of his wives made sure they were extremely vocal when he made love with them. By the time they were done and drifting off to sleep many of the locals were either watching Roger perform or listening to his women scream out their pleasure while they took their pleasure with their mates. Roger and his entourage left early the next morning amid pledges of friendship and promises to visit back and forth. Roger was well pleased because he felt they cemented a friendly alliance with the small tribe. He promised help to them if they should ever need it, and they made the same promise to him. Chapter 09 Roger and his new group of colonists made it back to Birmingham in mid-June. He was extremely anxious to see what progress was made on the tasks he left his men to work on when he departed. He had assigned the blacksmith and his helpers the task of beginning a mining operation for the metals they would need as well as the coal to smelt them with. They were going to set up the smelting operation near the deposits of metal. Other men in the group were assigned construction tasks and to the burgeoning farming operation. Bearstalker was assigned a small group of men to teach the Indian way of moving through the woods. When he was satisfied with their capability he would then teach another group until all were taught what he could teach them. Roger had done the same with those he took with him on the trip. He was also continuing the modern military training and had begun training his new colonists, as well in the modern methods of warfare and hand-to-hand combat. Before he was done he expected his army to rival the U.S. Army of 2010 in individual capability and tactics. Roger also planned to build more modern rifles and even some primitive body armor and helmets that he hoped would turn musket balls and arrows. In the future he hoped to build primitive tanks as well. He knew the great influx of settlers was already in the works and he wanted to be ready to repel the English and pick and choose those who he would allow to join his colony. After they returned home Roger gave the camp three days to celebrate their return and to integrate the new citizens into the group. While the new colonists were being integrated into the settlement Roger took a day to inspect the progress made while he was gone. Most of the primary tasks assigned were completed and the secondary ones well underway. As he walked around the settlement, Roger was pleased to see some new families being formed between the Indian women and some of his men. Three of Margarita's female relatives were paying amorous attention to three of Roger's men also. Some of the new families were already busy working on their cabins instead of relaxing as Roger said they could. On the morning of the fourth day after his return to Birmingham, Roger called his senior staff together for formal reports and a planning session. After he got the reports Roger discussed his next priority for the colony. He had designed a rudimentary blast furnace for smelting the metals and wanted to begin building it and then smelting the mined ore. One of the first runs would be some new knives and farming implements for the colonists. After those were completed Roger had plans for equipping his militia. Roger also wanted to begin building wheelbarrows, small trailers, and even an engine. He knew the engine would be difficult, even using those from the future for examples. They did not have the high-quality steel and other metals required for a truly robust long-lasting engine. Roger was frustrated. He had so many wants, so much knowledge of what was possible, but it was currently impossible to make those items point one of the ongoing tasks in the small settlement was forming a bond and teaching all the people English. Roger planned to hold school for all from the youngest to the oldest during the winter. He would continue to teach them to read, write, and think in the modern way. His plans were to use any and all the books he found in the wrecks. He knew many of the words and concepts would be well above the initial capability of his students, but he had been a firm believer for years that our modern-day schools did not work well. He felt students could learn more at a younger age than was usually taught. He knew individuals had varying abilities to learn and different interests. He hoped that by introducing concepts early he could identify a person's capability and channel their education in that direction earlier. He also intended to simplify the English he taught. Some spelling did not make sense to him, and he intended to correct that. He also intended to do away with many words that had similar sounds such as to for also, and so forth. Roger's concept of education was a hodgepodge of theories and concepts he had seen, been subjected to, or read about in his life. He wanted all his settlers to be able to read, write and do basic mathematics. He also intended to stress education in ethics and law. He intended to institute and enforce capital punishment for violent and serious offenses. From that base he would develop experts in the various fields. He initially intended to stress education in the sciences, manufacturing, engineering, and medicine. He would allow the arts as a hobby initially, and would decide at a later date if they would ever be a subject for classes in higher education. Currently, he felt as if they had no place in higher education. The rest of that summer, Roger and his small settlement spent preparing for the winter and stockpiling supplies of all types. Additionally, they improved the defensive capabilities of their small settlement. Roger was afraid they could not continue living without some attacks as the local Indians and even the Spanish began to fear and resent their colony. During the remainder of the summer they also began building some more modern items to make life easier. Roger designed and built carts and wagons that could run on roads or, by changing wheels, on the rail system he planned to build. Lengths, widths, heights were standardized. Roger also standardized containers where possible. As much as he hated to do so, he scrapped the old English system of weights and measures. He taught, and they used a metric system. By the time it turned cold, they had a large pile of the various ores ready to process, and an even larger pile of coal. Since smelting was a heat-intensive process Roger intended to run his smelters mostly in the winter until such time as they needed large volumes of metal. Roger did allow his settlers to bring some of the coal to the settlement to use for fuel. He had to limit its use for two reasons. Their stoves and fireplaces could not burn it efficiently, and he did not want the pollution near the settlement. Roger intended to limit pollution as much as he could from the beginning so it would never be the problem it had been in his time. He intended to do everything he could to protect the I. in mid-November Roger's camp was honored with a visit from the tribe of Indians he befriended when they were returning home. To Roger's surprise there was a white woman with them. She had a young child with her, a baby. When she saw Roger she slumped to the ground and hugged the child to her breast as she cried. Roger looked at her then turned his attention to the brave who seemed to be in charge. Roger still had not mastered the language used by the Indians in the area. He could understand some of it but still relied on Sonny to translate. After Sonny spoke to the young brave for a moment she turned to Roger and said, Prowling Wolf is the son of this tribe's chief. Their village was attacked shortly after we left. They beat off the attackers and followed them back to their village which they then attacked in retaliation for the attack on their village. During the attack some women and children were carried off. This woman was one of the ones they took from the village. They knew she was one of your people so they took her. She is almost worthless to them. She is a poor worker and they have to constantly watch her to be sure she correctly does the work she is assigned. At first they were going to kill her if she did not improve then they thought they would use her to entertain the young unmated braves and visitors. Apparently she is not very good at that task either. The chief remembered you and decided he would offer her in trade to you if you wanted her. If you do not I think she will never make it back to their village. Roger asked if he could speak to the woman. The leader of the small band nodded his head yes so Roger walked up to the woman. When he was close enough she wrapped her arms around his leg and began crying harder. She looked up at him and said, I didn't think I would ever see a white man again. I'm so sorry I didn't trust you when you pulled me from my car. I ran away as far and as fast as I could hoping to find someone who would help me. I let my fear blind me to what my eyes saw that day. Please let me stay with you now. I was captured by savages the second day after I ran from you and raped repeatedly. I have already born this one child and I think I am pregnant again. I don't know how much more I can take. I think if you do not let me stay with you these Indians plan to kill me. Please let me stay with you. Roger was shocked. Admittedly, he had only managed to talk with the woman for a short time when they were thrown back in time, but he did not recognize her at all. She looked like a woman from this time period. He did not even have to think about his action. He turned to Sonny and said, Find out what they want and trade for her, and give it if we have it. This is a woman from my home time. If for no other reason than that we have to help her. She will be invaluable to us just for her education, though. When the woman heard Roger say that to Sonny she began crying harder and leaned her head into Roger's leg as she clasped it tightly to her. She almost dropped the baby she was carrying in her other arm. Roger leaned down and grabbed the woman's arm. He pried it off his leg and gently helped her stand beside him. He raised his voice and called for Margarita. When Margarita arrived, Roger gently pushed the woman to her and said, This is Margarita. She is one of my wives. She will take you and the baby to our house. Margarita, I don't know this woman's name. We'll find that out and get her story later. She is going to live with us now. Would you please get her and the baby cleaned up and feed her if she's hungry? I'll be along as soon as I can. The woman looked up at Roger with adoration in her eyes. She said, My name is Ruth Baker. She smiled and looked down at the baby and said, This is my daughter Emma. Roger and Sonny spent several more minutes negotiating with the Indians for Ruth. The deal was not too costly for him because the Indians felt Ruth was worthless. Roger ended up getting her for a knife made from some of the metal they had mined and two partly cured deer hides. That evening, the whole camp had a feast to honor their visitors. During the feast, Roger began learning about Ruth. He found out she was a high school science and business teacher in his time. She was still very hesitant and frightened. Roger hoped she would get over her shock at the savagery of this time and become a productive educator once again. To his surprise Roger found she was only four years younger than he was. Roger's women adopted Ruth and moved her and Emma into their house. Roger was thankful she was not invited into their bed. His performance was somewhat curtailed because she was in the same room with them. However, this went on for several days before it all came to a head. Ruth found Roger teaching a small class one evening and sat listening to him. He was moving from person to person helping them as needed. There were more requests for help than usual, and she moved to help some of the men and women who needed it. After the class broke up she walked up to Roger and touched him on the arm. Ruth smiled at Roger and said, Thank you again for taking me in when you had no reason to do so. I mistrusted you and ran off when you were trying to help me before. I caused all my heartache because I did not trust you when you helped me that day in the woods. Now I am still causing you trouble. Please don't let me ruin your time with your wives, Roger. I have shed most if not all of my prejudices and hang-ups from our time. I have seen sex at its most primitive level and understand. You are not like the Indians who used me. When you have sex with your wives I can see and almost feel the love you pass back and forth. I understand and appreciate your attempts to keep it quiet and low-key, but that is not fair to your women. If I bother you that much, I can either try to find other accommodations or I can leave when you want to make love. Ruth laughed and continued talking. Of course, that would mean I would be out of the house almost every night for a few hours, but I can do that if it would make you more comfortable. Roger didn't know what to say. In a way, he was embarrassed by her statements, and in a way he appreciated them. Finally he said, "Thank you, Ruth." I appreciate what you said. I don't know why I have felt hesitant with you in the room. I have made love with my wives many times in front of others with no hesitation and we let it all out. I think it is because you were of my time that I felt more restrained. As far as I am concerned our home is your home and there is no need for you to leave either for good or when we make love. Thank you for your help tonight also. You seem like you are getting better. When you feel like it, I would appreciate it if you would become our primary educator so I can go on to other projects. We have a lot to do to build our civilization. I want to industrialize and prevent the exploitation of this land and people as it was done in our timeline. To do that, we need to prevent Europeans from colonizing America, and to do that, we need to build an industrial civilization that will be stronger than theirs when they begin arriving in large numbers. I will teach the engineering courses and some of the classes for our manufacturing students when they progress to that level. I need you for the entry-level classes in biological sciences. Chapter 10 While they finished preparation for the upcoming winter, Roger and his various teams of what passed for experts began working on technological improvements. They began the crude smelting of zinc, copper, tin, and iron using the materials on hand. The high-quality steel available from the vehicles was a godsend. Roger saved the electronics engines and other peripheral equipment to use later or to use as an example when they tried to manufacture a similar item. The items in those vehicles were worth more than their weight in gold. They were the items that would jumpstart his new civilization, his new nation, and move their technology almost 425 years ahead in less than one lifetime. All of this did not even begin to take into consideration the metal and equipment in the crashed bomber nearby. My god, they had radio, radar, and ECM not that they would need that for a spell. There were servos and synchros, there was hydrostatic drive pumps, hydraulic cylinders, electric motors, gauges and so on. The list is almost endless. He actually owned a treasure trove if he could devise a method of building copies of the equipment. of course, Roger was constantly thankful for the treasure trove contained in the true-value semi-truck that arrived with him. How do you place a value on all the items in a modern-day hardware store? Even better, How do you value those items in a civilization that had not invented them yet at the worst or, at the best, only had crude examples of them? Roger found and was using so many items from the truck that to list them would be impossible. Many of those items he used sparingly because when they were gone, they were gone for years to come before he could manufacture more. During his planning to industrialize Roger at first thought he would develop steam power as a first step but then he decided he would try to make a small gasoline or alcohol engine to drive a generator and electrical engines. One thing he really needed was oil. He needed it for fuel as well as lubricants. He thought he remembered the general area in Pennsylvania where it was found in abundance. If he remembered correctly some oil actually bubbled to the top of the ground around what would be Titusville, Pennsylvania in his timeline. That was in the north and western part of the state point one of the first things he wanted to do the next summer was take an expedition to see if they could find the oil fields. Their need for oil was great. With oil they could distill fuel and lubricants and even have a base for some medications. Roger and Ruth spent many hours planning and drawing plans for items they would need. They planned the expedition to the oil fields of Pennsylvania and they planned their educational curriculum as well as the work of the colony for the immediate future. The couple also spent many hours prioritizing their research and construction for the items they hoped to build. They spent many more hours teaching the colonists to read and write for without educated workers Roger's plans for his new civilization would not come to fruition. They used the advanced books whenever they could so they were also picking up some higher level knowledge as they learned the basics. As soon as the first crops were in Roger equipped his expedition for the oil fields and left Birmingham. This was not an easy trip for many reasons. They tromped through dense forests and over mountains and valleys much more rugged than those they had moved through before there were many minor injuries from falls also. Unfortunately, the Indians they encountered were not as prone to friendliness as those in Florida and near Birmingham. Roger rapidly became thankful he equipped his patrol with modern weapons. He only had twenty men with him, and one or two times they would not have won their fights without the modern repeating weapons. Of course the bombs or hand grenades he manufactured from black powder helped too. Finally, after almost two months' travel and much discussion with the few friendly Indians they encountered, Roger and his patrol found an oil seep. They spent the next week exploring the area and collecting several containers of oil to take back with them. On the return trip, Roger searched for an easier way to get back to Birmingham. The maps he drew on the trip's outward leg now became very valuable. Roger began clearing and blazing a trail toward Birmingham that would soon be turned into a road. After all, he would have to transport his oil or refined products back to his home for them to be of any use to his colony. Over the course of the next couple of years Roger began to have some success in all the areas he was attempting to progress in. Of course the simplest areas had the most success. Their farming operation became very successful using the modern seeds he found in the truck and his knowledge of agriculture. His rudimentary knowledge of genetics allowed him to begin a breeding program to maximize egg production and meat production from his chickens. He even began a breeding program to improve milk and beef production. The next most successful endeavor was using his knowledge to build simple labor saving machines. It took him over two years to develop a small alcohol fueled engine, but when he did, development of other items proceeded at a more rapid pace. He was able to motorize many jobs previously done by hand. Now, development proceeded at a faster and faster pace. As their knowledge increased, the people born in this time began to make suggestions and experiment. Knowledge leaped forward. Innovation became epidemic. The children learned at a prodigious pace. In many areas of knowledge, they stressed Ruth and Roger, then surged ahead of their limited knowledge as they completed research on their own based on hints from the few books Roger had. A primitive printing press was built and operated. More textbooks were printed to make learning easier and the spread of knowledge faster. In their spare time, five of Roger's men began to experiment with aircraft. Within a year of their first experiments, they had a flying single seater. It used one of the small engines built for other uses and was a propeller job but it did fly. Roger opened up another division of research and let those five men run his nascent aeronautical industry. He provided what little engineering knowledge he had. Once again, they did their own research and soon knew more about aircraft than did Roger. Many people began working on their own projects after normal colony working hours. Capitalism was born once again. Eventually, Roger had to institute a banking and monetary system because the barter system did not work well for many of the privately manufactured goods. Roger sold or in most cases gave away many of his businesses to those running them. Now the need for money was even greater. Since the workers were used to the crown or government, keeping and redistributing a share of every item built or produced they did not complain or resent that practice continuing when they became owners of a business or farm. Roger instituted a flat arbitrary tax rate across the board of 15 percent. There were also rapid advances in health care. Two men and one of the unmarried women had shown not only interest but a great aptitude for medicine. Some of the other women became something like a cross between midwives, nurses, and EMTs. They were learning much from the medical texts found in the vehicle of the deceased professor. It would be years before medical care progressed to the level of the late 1900s on his timeline, but already what they were learning improved care for his settlement. Infections were being healed when before the person might die of gangrene. They learned how to produce penicillin and some of the other simpler drugs and were doing so. They gained some rudimentary knowledge about many of the more common health problems and how to treat or prevent them. In short, medical care was already at the level available during the late 1890s to early 1900s on Roger's previous timeline. Roger did not limit his medical care to just his colonists either. He made it known throughout the area that his healers would treat anyone who needed help as long as they were friendly to the colony. This consideration helped cement the friendship of many of the Indian tribes in the area and resulted in the assimilation of even more people into the community. They were producing oil from the fields in Pennsylvania and were learning to make fuel and lubricants from it. They developed a low-quality gasoline and some other oil derivatives. Roger was feeling pleased with the progress of his small army as well. Much of the petroleum produced went to the small military and to manufacturing. Now that they had crude gasoline, Roger went back to the drawing boards to develop gasoline engines. He still intended to use the cleaner burning alcohol engines for some items, but really needed the gasoline engines for their greater power and efficiency. They now had three small settlements connected by a road network and by a small rail network. At first they used the horses to pull wagons on the roads and rails, but after the small engines were developed Roger built self-powered vehicles to move materials and people around. He built crude electrical motors and went straight to small diesel electric railroad engines. Admittedly the engines could not pull large loads but they did as well as or better than a horse and small wagon. Roger even built some small four-wheeled pedal-powered vehicles for movement on roads and rail. For small loads or for individual movement those worked well on short distances. It was becoming difficult for Roger to justify not using the vehicles for personal transportation because he found many of his experts and workers were needed in different locations often enough and rapidly enough they needed the faster transportation. He decided he needed to relax his prohibition against personal transport in order to facilitate progress. He did mandate smaller lighter vehicles to maximize fuel efficiency. Roger also required use of rail and other public transportation whenever possible. Unfortunately, rail transport was impractical unless the worker was going to a town along the existing rail lines or one that could be reached easily from one of the rail stops. Even then the use of an internal combustion-powered vehicle was justified from the rail terminal to the remote location. Now much of the progress of Roger's budding nation was stifled by the lack of educated and willing workers. Not many of the Indians were interested in being assimilated into Roger's technological civilization. To the chagrin of many tribal elders the young men would sneak off to Roger's settlements to learn about his marvels. He gained some workers from the Spanish in Florida and even a few Frenchmen from the Louisiana area. Occasionally, one or two English would be added when they were brought back by one of Roger's exploration teams. Roger needed colonists, and he needed them now, and he needed better educated ones which were almost impossible to find. Roger walked into the small school Ruth was operating for him. They still had few enough students that they learned the basics in one large room. School began for children at age four and ran year-round except for the few days in the spring and summer when they were needed to help with the gardens and later with the harvest. The normal school day began at 0730 and ended at 1200 when they broke for lunch. After lunch the children were free to play unless they were old enough to begin working with one of the experts in the various fields. The first five years of formal education the students were given all the basics. The year a child turned nine years old they cycled through all the different specialties until the specialists and student identified the career path the student would follow. By the time a child was 10 to 12 years old their career path was usually chosen and they trained a minimum of two to four hours an afternoon in their future specialty. Normally by the time the child was 12 they had absorbed all the book learning available and spent most of their school days doing actual work in their specialty. After a year or two of work in their specialty the gifted students also began doing research trying to expand knowledge in their field or recreate an item Roger had an example of from his previous timeline. Of course not all people were fitted for academia. Many of the young were directed into the more usual occupations of this time period. They were farmers, miners, hunters, construction workers and so forth. This did not require that all obtained the equivalent of a college degree in the technical specialties Roger was trying to resurrect. A certain number of students thus left the education system at age nine or ten after they had absorbed all the basics of the three R's, reading, written, and arithmetic. This day, as classes continued, Roger surveyed the different groups of students and listened to their lessons. The older children helped the adults teach the younger ones. From time to time even Roger still taught some classes. He helped with mathematics. Engineering and some of the ethics and law classes. No, he wasn't a lawyer, but he wanted basic respect for authority and law ingrained in his students from the very beginning. He had written all the laws that existed for his colony, and he made sure all his colonists understood and followed the law. Each of his settlement leaders had authority to pass sentence and mete out punishment for minor infractions, but Roger retained final say for what he considered to be capital punishment. He retained jurisdiction over cases that affected the whole colony its safety and security, as well as violent crimes. Finally the school day ended and the teachers dismissed the students for the day. Ruth smiled and walked over to where Roger was seated. She bent and gave him a gentle kiss then sat across from him. She said, You weren't scheduled to be here today, Roger. You must want something. What can I do for you? Roger sighed and said, The same thing, Ruth. We need more workers, more researchers and I just don't have them. "'The English will be upon us in droves soon and I have to have a large enough population "'and a strong enough technical base and army to prevent them from getting a foothold in America. "'Is there anything you can do to speed up your output? "'Roger, I'm sorry, but really there isn't much more I can do to help you. "'Oh, we may be able to cut a year from the schooling on many of the children, "'but they are so young now when you put them to work it just tears me up. "'We are stealing their childhood from them now. "'They are young and immature.' Many of them lack physical strength and good judgment. I fear we are stressing them as much as we can. Thankfully people of this time are more used to constant work and struggle so they aren't suffering as would the young of our old time period if they were put under this much stress. I still worry about what we are doing to these children though. Yeah, but remember, many people of this time period are out on their own by the time they are fourteen or sixteen. We still give them a lot of free time in the afternoons and their apprenticeships are not that demanding. Much of their afternoon work is driven by their desire to learn a new occupation more than the demands of their immediate supervisory, or by me. Roger, you know these people adore you. Almost all of them down to the youngest child would die for you if the need arose. They know you are the driving force behind this colony, this nation. They know your brain contains the key to a better life for them if they can just learn and produce the things you tell them about or have examples of. They drive themselves. Look at those men that took their own time and built the first aircraft. They would work on that airplane in the evening after 12-14 to hour workdays in their normal occupations. They did that all for you and because they wanted to see and use the marvels you told them about. I know, but heck, I need even more men and women in the militia. At some point soon I want to form a standing army. We will need a navy soon and merchant marine. Every invention we make or rediscover here just increases the number of men and women we need to utilize the technology. Chapter 11 Roger's fledgling nation slowly gained more colonists. Of course, for the first two or three years after a new colonist joined they were almost useless. They had to be educated before they could be productive. Many of the new colonists were unable to learn and went either into the small army or became miners, farmers or other general laborers. Even then, however, there was a steep learning curve because the military and agricultural knowledge of Rogers' colony was far ahead of the normal education level of this time period. As those people moved into the jobs requiring less education they did free some of Rogers' better educated people for more important tasks. Surprisingly, some of the laborers replaced by new colonists chose to resume their education and moved into the more technical work for the colony. This resulted in an increase in the rate of progress for the colony. As his colony continued to grow Roger began to push the boundaries of his settlement east and south taking in more and more area as he felt he could control and protect it. One of the biggest challenges was in expanding the rail and road network which is what allowed the army to protect the increased area. The ability to move men and equipment is critical to any military. Closely behind came his farms and small towns to support them and his other interests as the colony grew so did their immigration. When people from Florida heard about the equality and peace he provided many would slip away and move to what Roger began calling the North American Union. Many Indians moved into his settlements and were assimilated. To his surprise Roger occasionally met an Englishman or Frenchman walking through the woods. So far most of them did not want to stay with them, but he always made the invitation and sent word out with them that he would take new immigrants. He had hopes this word of mouth would eventually cause immigration to go from the current trickle into a steady stream point one of Roger's greatest ongoing jobs was to make Europeans treat the Indians as civilized beings. His early settlers learned the task well but his new ones still tended to look down on the savages. Of course, when the Indians felt they were wrong they tended to fight as would anyone else. Roger constantly and severely punished those guilty of discrimination no matter what ethnic group was being discriminated against. His standing up for them caused the Indians to respect Roger even more and surprisingly, most of the Europeans respected Roger for his stance especially those who were in a minority Also, BY the time 1600 rolled around the non-Native American population of his small colony past 5000 and they covered an area Roger estimated to be the size of modern-day Georgia and Alabama combined. Of course they were spread very thin but each of his settlements was secure enough to be able to defend itself well. Roger grew his development to the east and south hoping to meet up with and assimilate the settlers from Florida and the ones arriving from England more rapidly. He sent small detachments from his army on exploration missions to the north and east as well as into Florida and west as far as the Mississippi River. As they explored they built rudimentary roads that would be expanded and upgraded later to carry modern traffic. Every exploratory mission mapped their travels. Roger's small military patrols finally had a fortunate slash unfortunate side effect. The Spanish governor of Florida became angry because Roger not only incited his colonists and some of the soldiers to desert, but his colony began encroaching on land the king of Spain considered his. Roger's patrols began meeting more and more resistance from the Spanish. Spain began building forts along the Florida border and sending patrols into Roger's North American Union. For Roger, the last straw came when the Spanish attacked a small community and burned it to the ground. They killed many of the inhabitants, including some of the women and children. It was almost noon when the report of the attack came to Roger. He immediately called his department heads to a meeting. Bearstalker was de facto head of his small army. He considered himself the war chief. Roger waited for all to be seated then stood to deliver his address. He informed the assembly of the facts, as he knew them. Of course many of them already knew some of the facts from the rumors flying through the settlement. Now Roger began pacing until calm was restored he said. You all know I have always intended to keep the European countries from colonizing this continent. You all know of my vision for our nation. I have hesitated to do more than we have about the Spanish in Florida for several reasons. I worried about us being strong enough to fight a war with them if we angered the king. I also liked the fact that they brought colonists over to us, and we could select the ones we wanted when they became disenchanted with the Spanish. I believe this policy has to change. We cannot let another attack on our villages, on our nation, happen. I propose to take two companies of the army to Florida and retaliate for this unprovoked attack on innocent civilians. As you know, I intended to have rudimentary roads into the New England area before the settlers begin arriving in large numbers so we could lay prior claim to the land and better protect it. I wanted to have these roads completed before we had to confront armed attack, but our hand has been forced. I still intend to do this so we can take many of the settlers and their new settlements into this nation if they are willing to abide by our rules and laws. I wanted these roads and this development so we could repel the English army easier when it begins to arrive. We will have to put these plans on hold for a short while to deal with the Spanish. I see now I really should have done something sooner. Now we will. Within the week, Roger and his men moved south heading for Florida. He was 39 chronological years old in the year 1600. With a slow burning but intense anger, Roger began the drive to push the Spanish government troops out of Florida. Soon, in late 1601, Florida became the third state in his North American Union. After that defeat Spanish ships still came around from time to time but since the NAU army defeated their small forces on the land and accepted the colonists into their society, they came mostly for trade or port calls. Roger's manufactured goods were beginning to be highly sought after in Europe. Occasionally, some military forays were made against Rogers' forces in a feeble attempt to regain control of Florida. These forays were always unsuccessful because Rogers' forces were so much better trained and armed than the Spanish. Finally, the Spanish gave up because of their losses of ships and men and formally ceded Florida to the North American Union. Spain became the first nation to recognize Rogers' new nation. Trade, while slight, became more and more important to the two nations. Of course, The strife in Spain and France had some bearing on the Spanish decision. Occasionally a whole shipload of immigrants would show up from either Spain or France. St. Augustine rapidly became a very busy port. Roger and his people made friends with the Seminole and other tribes in the area. Many of them were assimilating into the society he was building and learning the modern skills. With Roger's help they were able to fight off and destroy invading or marauding Indian tribes. Those who did not want to assimilate were allowed to live as they had for centuries with the exception of continuing their warlike ways. If they raided, Roger sent a small army to punish the miscreants. He wiped out several villages that just would not learn to live peacefully with their neighbors. The survivors mostly women and small children were allowed to either move to one of the N.E.U. towns or into one of the settlements of the peaceful Indians still following the old ways. Some of the tribes actually moved from the area the N.E.U. controlled because they did not want to live as Roger demanded, and they were unable to successfully fight his forces. They wanted to continue their warlike ways and raid their neighbors. They learned they could not successfully raid Roger's settlements so they moved on. As Roger expanded his nation borders almost the first thing that followed the troops were the teachers. They opened schools or moved into existing schools and instituted Roger's educational curriculum. As students with high intelligence and special capabilities were identified, they were sent to Birmingham for training in one of the technical specialties. Birmingham became the seat of Roger's first university. BY 1603, Roger had large steel ships on the drawing boards. He already had two smaller metal patrol craft actually afloat with modern naval cannons installed. Just the small patrol craft should be sufficient to sink a top-of-the-line wooden English frigate. They certainly did a good job sinking the occasional Spanish ship that had the temerity to attack the NAU. Roger needed the larger steel ships to patrol farther to sea and to take the fight to Great Britain. He also wanted them so he could trade into the Caribbean and turn back the slave ships he expected to arrive soon. As time progressed Roger finally moved his center of operations from the Birmingham area. He left many of the original Roanoke settlers and their descendants there working in the mines and steel mills or other factories. Sometime in the past, Roger achieved almost godlike status to the Indians and even to his European settlers. He felt he spent way too much of his time governing the small nation now, but he could not see any other way to do it. His subjects came to him with more and more problems wanting resolution. What he really wanted to do was design machinery and infrastructure. He wanted to build machines and roads. What he was doing was interceding in interpersonal relationships, business dealings, and arguments between settlements. He had very little time to design the technological marvels he wanted to see built, and that they needed. Roger finally gave up and admitted he was the hereditary leader of the area he called the North American Union. He and his closest advisors formalized the structure and began building a stronger national identity. Roger even designed a flag for the young nation. It closely resembled the Texas flag from his time period. Roger decided he needed to move his capital from the interior of the country. He decided the new location for his capital would be where Savannah, Georgia was located in his original timeline. By the time he made the decision to move his capital to Savannah Roger was 42 years old. Construction of the new settlement and capital began in 1603. Construction moved rapidly using settlers from Florida and Birmingham as well as assimilated Indians and new emigrants from Europe. Now, also, ships called from European ports and soon a trickle became a deluge of settlers as escaped. Shanghai seamen and voluntary immigrants escaping their lives in Europe began to swell the population. Roger felt confident things would be handled well in the oil fields and the Birmingham area if he and his governing body moved to the coast. Over the years, Roger had given workers and managers partial ownership in his endeavors. Roger owned 25% of all endeavors he originally formed. His small nation owned another 26%. The remaining 49% of the endeavor was owned by the managers and workers. Profits were split based upon an agreed-upon formula with higher pay going to persons higher in the hierarchy. Roger, as King voted the 51% in management disputes, but he normally had a hands-off attitude as long as the operation produced efficiently and honestly. Privately-owned businesses were taxed a flat 15% of revenues or production as previously stated point one of the driving forces for the move to Savannah was the excellent port in the area. Roger was ready to build his large ships and needed the bay and area for their port. He had roads and railroads linking the oil fields in Birmingham and Birmingham and the Savannah area. There were roads south into Florida also point one of the first things built at Savannah after housing was the shipyard. It took four years to build the first large ship but the second one was only a year behind. They would complete large ships at the rate of one per year after that, assuming they did not run into any serious problems. It was a proud day for Roger when the first ship slipped down the ways into the bay. Three months were needed to finish fitting it out after it was launched and Roger boarded it for the maiden voyage. Smaller ships, coastal patrol boats mostly, were built as time and space allowed. They produced two or three per year of the smaller units. Occasionally one of the larger ships produced would not be armed as heavily. It would then be used as a merchantman, Private individuals still produced some smaller sailing vessels, but the NAU did not own or operate anything except steel-hulled ships. The captain of the first ship built was Roger's stepdaughter Emma. At the time she took command she was only eighteen years old. Yes, Roger had married Ruth and adopted her daughter two years after she came to live with him. She had been with him throughout the time since. They cried together when Sonny and Deer died several years previously in one of the few Indian raids on Birmingham. Margarita was now his oldest wife. She was weak and frail at 46 years of age. Roger knew it would not be long before she, too, died and left him alone except for Ruth and their many children. Emma and the other children were educated using the modern books Roger found in the vehicles transported back in time with him. Their knowledge was far and away above that of most men of the time. Roger made sure they were all trained in the modern methods of fighting he learned in the USA military. His military training followed that of the Rangers and Green Berets more than that of the regular infantry. This made them strong, unconventional fighters. If they were not surprised, they could always defeat one of the downtime fighters. The day the first large warship was to take her maiden voyage Roger boarded with Ruth. He made his way to the bridge and was embarrassed when the petty officer of the watch, for this was a warship, blew his bosun's pipe and said, His Majesty, King Roger I and Admiral of the Fleet, on the bridge. Emma looked over at Roger and her mother Ruth. She smiled and said, "'Welcome aboard, your majesties. "'We're ready to depart at your convenience. "'I assume the plans remain unchanged? "'We are running up the coast to Boston then returning?' "'Yes, Captain. "'No change in orders and belay the fawning. "'I've been your father now for more years than I want to think about "'and I expect you to remember that.' Emma grinned and saluted impudently. "'Of course, sire,' she said. Roger watched Emma carefully maneuver her ship from its place at the dock and out into the stream. They were rapidly heading for the open ocean. After they were moving well, he hugged Ruth and said, Captain, I'm going below to see how the engines are doing. Call me when you are ready to test the weapons. Almost two hours later, a loud voice boomed from the speaker tube from the bridge to the engine room. Roger and the engine crew heard. Admiral to the bridge. Now general quarters, general quarters. All hands man your battle stations. Close all watertight doors. This is no drill. I repeat, this is no drill. What would have been a leisurely trip from the engine room to the bridge for Roger became a mad dash. When he arrived the entire battle crew was at their posts and the weapons were being manned and trained out to the starboard side. Roger looked at a serious-looking Emma and asked, What's going on, Captain? Why are we at General Quarters? Emma handed him her binoculars and pointed out a sailing ship to the northeast. It was flying the Union Jack and had its cannon ran out. Just behind it Roger saw another ship, a merchantman by its looks making for the open sea. When they came near the frigate they were hailed by the captain of the British warship. Heave to there. What are you doing in his majesty's waters, captain? And what manner of vessel are you? I do not recognize the flag you fly. Emma looked at her father for a moment then asked. Do you want me to hail him or do you want to do it, sire? I suppose I should do it since I am here. I'm afraid this may be the beginning of the difficulties I have been expecting to crop up with the British. They claim the New World, you know, and I am about to disabuse them of that notion. I wouldn't be surprised if this wasn't a deliberate attempt to put us in our places. It has been about long enough for our agreement with the Spanish over Florida to get to England. Roger stepped onto the bridge wing nearest the British warship and raised his megaphone to his mouth. I am King Roger I. Admiral of the fleet, and ruler of the North American Union in whose waters you are trespassing. By what right do you come into our waters? If it is to trade, why do you have your cannon ran out? North American Union? I know not of this place. This land is the property of the Crown and we are here to colonize it. Now be off with you before we have to fire on you. No, sorry. You seem to have been misinformed. This entire continent is the property of the North American Union and is not open to colonization. We will, however, accept immigrants if they meet our selection criteria. We will soon make our way to England to set up offices in which we will select those who we will be willing to take as immigrants. I would advise you and your king to withdraw before you make a serious mistake. You are, however, welcome to send a diplomatic representative if you want peaceful intercourse. Ridiculous. Heave to there. Prepare to receive borders. I've had enough of your impudence, sir. I demand you surrender in the name of the king. Roger turned to Emma and said, I don't think he's going to listen to reason. If he fires on us, even if it is a warning shot, hull him in the bow just over the waterline. If he continues to fire, sink him with your next salvo. Before Roger finished giving his orders the English captain ordered his gunner to fire a warning round over the bow of the NEU ship. Almost before the sound of the cannon died out Emma turned to her gunnery officer and said, Forward gun turret is authorized to fire one round into the enemy's bow, one meter above the waterline. If he returns fire, all mounts that will bear on target are authorized to fire for effect and sink the bastard. Ah, ma'am," he said. He turned to the enlisted man beside him and relayed the orders. The forward mount fired, and almost a third of the bow of the frigate disappeared in a gout of flame from the explosion. Roger turned to Emma and said, "Hum, I seem to have misjudged the damage one of our shells would do to a wooden hull." Let's see what he's going to do now. As he spoke the English ship fired once more, this time with a full broadside. To their consternation all the cannonballs just bounced off the steel hull of the NEU ship with no discernible damage. Emma decided to be merciful. She turned to her gunnery officer and interrupted him just as he was going to order the batteries to fire for effect. She said, Belay my last order. Mount one is to fire one shell at the waterline abaft of the enemy's bow then stand by to rescue survivors. Aye, ma'am. To no one's surprise that one shell was all it took. The British ship broke in half and plunged to the bottom in less than two minutes. They managed to recover thirteen survivors including the captain, sailing master, and eleven crew. When the captain of the British ship was brought onto the bridge he began walking toward Emma when he saw the four broad gold stripes of a captain on her sleeves. She turned to him and he stopped in shock when he saw she was female. Emma smiled and turned to the older man beside her. She said, Captain, I am Captain Emma Baker Smith of the North American Union Navy. This is my stepfather, King Roger I of the NAU. Welcome to the good ship endeavor, fast frigate one of the NAU Navy. The defeated captain swallowed twice then unbuckled his sword. He turned to Roger and presented it to him. Your Majesty, may I present my sword as a token of my defeat and surrender? He hesitated momentarily. "'returned to a position of attention and continued speaking. "'What manner of ship is this?' he asked. "'It appears to be made entirely of metal. "'I see no sails yet it moves through the water faster than even the fastest racing yacht. "'And your cannon! "'You fired but two times and sank one of the newest and most powerful ships in His Majesty's fleet. "'Roger gravely took the captain's sword and said, "'I will answer your questions in due time, Captain. First, if you will give me your parole, and that of your men.' And promise not to attempt to escape or harm my crew, I will return your sword to you. The English captain looked at Roger in shock and gratitude, then said, I accept, sire, with gratitude. I would like to discuss a ransom and repatriation as soon as possible, also. I am sorry, captain, but unless one of your ships comes calling, that won't be possible for some time. This is the first in the line of new warships we are building, and we are on our shakedown cruise right now. After our sea trials, we plan to make a trip to England and deal with your king. We will take you, your crew, and any other Englishmen we have who want to return home at that time. I would like to negotiate a trade agreement and emigration agreements with your king as soon as possible. Roger thought about running the other ship down then decided not to. Instead he instructed Emma to follow the escaping ship while he visited with the captured captain. After passing those instructions Roger once again turned to the captured captain and said, Now captain, please accompany me to my quarters so we can visit. After they were seated in Roger's quarters and had refreshments, Roger asked, Now, Captain, tell me why you were with the ship that is trying to escape us and what it carries. The captain said, She was an English merchantman captured by pirates. We recaptured her and put a prize crew aboard. There were barely enough aboard to operate the ship's sire. When you appeared, I instructed her to escape, if at all possible, while I dealt with your ship. I know not what she carries in her holds except it appears to be plunder of some kind. Roger debated capturing or sinking the ship but then decided he would not do so. There might be items of use aboard but the effort didn't seem worth it assuming the captain was correct. Roger was sure the ship was a merchantman and he had seen poorly repaired damage so was inclined to accept the captured captain's story. Roger instructed Emma to shadow the ship the rest of the day. They followed the escaping ship well out to sea. When Roger decided it was making for home he had Emma turn back toward America. They completed their planned shakedown cruise coming close to shore a time or two so the English captain could look through Roger's binoculars and see some of the roads and improvements Roger and his people were building. The captain was surprised because he had been told America was only occupied by savages and was a wild land ripe for the taking. As they entered Savannah Harbor they encountered one of the smaller patrol vessels, as well as several smaller fishing and coastal freighters, most of which were still sail-powered. Once again the captain was in awe. Savannah was a small town by any standards but they were well on the way to building a nice capital building and other public buildings. They were working on government buildings, a university, and, of course, warehouses near the docks. In addition to all the construction evident there were three Spanish merchant ships and one French merchantman at the docks taking on cargo. A small building in the warehouse district was turned over to the captured sailors for use as a barracks. The manager's office was used as captain's quarters. Strangely, The building turned over to the English was next to the port security building and barracks. The captain was a frequent visitor in Roger's home. He became, if not a friend, a respected acquaintance. Chapter 12 Finally, nearly a year after the sinking of the English frigate and the capture of the surviving crew Roger decided it was time to make the trip to England. It was now 1606 and they had three of the new warships in commission. He took two of them on the mission along with a freighter carrying items the captain thought would sell well in Great Britain. The cargo consisted of furs, some native handicrafts, oak mass timbers, samples of food, and some fish that had been salted down. Also included were several cases of citrus fruits. Roger boarded a platoon of his finest troops along with their weapons for protection. The English captain asked how long Roger thought the passage would take and was shocked when Roger replied, No longer than ten days, I would expect. It all depends on fuel usage. We cannot obtain fuel for our ships in England so have to move at a pace that will conserve our on-board supplies. We have enough on board to make the crossing to England and back with enough to spare for one more crossing if need arises. High seas and wind as well as high speed maneuvering would deplete the fuel faster. Amazing. Simply amazing. The ships departed on the next high tide. The English captain obtained a sextant somewhere and constantly took sightings that he plotted on a chart he kept with him. He walked around in a constant state of amazement from the speed with which they were crossing the Atlantic Ocean dot on the morning of the eighth day they came in sight of the mouth of the Thames River. Over the last two days ships of all sizes were seen by the NAU vessel. None of them were ever close enough to hail, however. Some of them even looked as if they were beating away from the strange ships sailing down the channel without visible means of propulsion. When they entered the river heading for the anchorage at London Roger's and AU ships were finally confronted by two warships. Roger allowed the frigates to close with his ships. When the two English frigates came within hailing range the senior English captain shouted, Heave to there! What manner of vessel are you that you can move without sails? I see no paddles for galley slaves. I demand to know from whence you come and the purpose of your visit. Roger once again spoke for his ships. I am Admiral Roger Timmons from the North American Union. We are on a diplomatic mission from our country. We wish to arrange trade treaties and perhaps work out an agreement for some of your people to immigrate to our country. I also have aboard some of your countrymen that I am repatriating. I am afraid their ship was sunk and they had no way home until we were able to bring them. After he finished talking Roger handed the megaphone to the English captain. He took the device and said, I am Captain Smith, formerly of HMS Frightful. Unfortunately for us, we attacked King Roger's ship several months ago and came out the worse for it. He has graciously agreed to repatriate us as a show of goodwill. I carry a message for the king and admiralty from him. We request permission for these three ships to move to an anchorage pending approval for him to go ashore and present his credentials to the representatives of the crown, the captain that had previously hailed said. Permission to move to anchorage is granted. Follow us to your assigned anchorage point. The small flotilla proceeded under the watchful eyes of the two warships. It took until dusk for them to traverse the remaining distance to the assigned anchorage and make their ships secure. After he finished talking to the senior officer on board the English frigate, Captain Smith handed the megaphone back to Roger. He smiled and said, It is wonderful to be back in England, your majesty. If I had not taken the sightings and plotted the course myself, though I do not think I would ever have believed the crossing from America to Great Britain could have been made as rapidly as your ships made it. Who would have believed you could cross the entire Atlantic Ocean in eight days? Certainly not I. Or, at least, I would not have believed it before you showed me it was possible. I wonder what other wonderful things you have in America that I have yet to see. The English captain opted to remain on board Roger's flagship for one more night before he and his men returned to shore. His first duty the next day would be to report to the Admiralty and deliver a message for Roger, as well as report on the failure of his mission. Of course, he assumed the merchant ship he was escorting made its way back home and reported the sinking of his frigate. The captain was also anxious to see his wife in the hopes she had enough faith in him to have remained waiting for his return. After they anchored close together where they could mutually defend each other, Roger's ships set their anchor watches and armed guards. To the surprise of the other anchored ships, as darkness fell, great bright lights came on illuminating the three ships and the waters around them. Armed guards could be seen carefully watching the waters around the three strange ships. Early the next morning Roger ordered two boats lowered over the sides so the English sailors could be returned to their homeland. The boats quickly motored to the pier and offloaded the English sailors. They returned to their ship just as rapidly where they were once again lifted back on board and secured to their davits. Throughout their trek to the shore and back the local people stared and watched in awe. Many of them seemed fearful of the almost magically appearing small boats that flew through the water with no visible means of propulsion. Early the next day, Captain Smith returned and was rowed out to Roger's flagship. He was piped aboard and delivered a message to Roger. Your Highness, I am afraid I have bad news for you. The King is angry with you. He is beyond angry in fact. His ministers were afraid he was going to die of apoplexy when your message was delivered to him. He states the Americas belong to the crown and you are an interloper. He has ordered me to offer you surrender terms. The terms are very generous considering his anger. I believe they are so generous solely because of your treatment of me and my crew. You are ordered to surrender yourself, your crews and your ships immediately or you will be sunk where you are anchored. You will be tried for piracy as will your captains. Your crews will be allowed to go into the British fleet as sailors. I'm afraid the king considers you English citizens and is treating you as such, your majesty. Roger laughed and said, You are joking, right? Did you tell them what happened when you tried to sink just one of my ships? Did you tell them it took only two shells for me to sink one of the largest, most powerful warships in the English fleet? Yes, your highness, I did, but they do not believe me. They have convinced themselves that you must have set off some of my powder to cause such a large explosion. Sire, I am sorry but I must return immediately with your answer. Roger looked at the captain and said, Tell your king we will not surrender our ships and we will not tolerate any invasion of our land. I will consider unauthorized colonies to be an invasion of my lands just as I would the landing of troops. Tell him we will welcome trade but we will sink any ships guilty of trying to colonize our land or trying to land soldiers. I will consider landing armed soldiers as an invasion and an act of war. I will respond accordingly. Further tell your king that I am leaving now and will sink any ship that attempts to stop me. I will fire upon any land-based battery that brings my ships under fire. Captain Smith sighed, bowed, and said, Yes, sire, you respond as I suspected you would. I am truly sorry. With your permission, I will go now. Roger stood for a moment then said, Of course, captain. You may leave the ship. Just before Captain Smith climbed over the gunwale, Roger raised his voice and said, Captain Smith! The departing captain stopped and looked at Roger. Roger saluted him and said, Captain, should you ever find your way back to the NAU and desire to become one of our citizens, I would be pleased to have you command one of my ships. If you were to bring some quality settlers and seamen with you, that would be a good thing also, sir. They would be welcome. Captain Smith hesitated for a moment, returned the salute, and said, Thank you, sire. You never know what fate will befall one. It would be a pleasure indeed to once again see you in more pleasant circumstances. The rowboat carrying the captain had only gone about ten feet before Roger ordered his ships to general quarters. As soon as all battle stations were manned the order to weigh anchor and get underway was given. When the warships surrounding them saw the anchor chains coming up they beat to quarters and ran out their cannons. No further orders to surrender were given. Almost simultaneously the nearest English ships opened fire on Roger's ships as before the cannonballs bounced off the hulls. Unfortunately for the ships firing on Roger, his shells did not bounce off their wooden hulls. Each of the attacking warships was given one shot right at the waterline just abaft the bow. That one shot was all it took. They began to list and sank in varying amounts of time. Some of them began burning as they sank. The harbor was littered with debris and floating bodies. Roger ignored the carnage and his ships slowly moved downstream. Every time another ship or a shore battery took him under fire he responded in kind. By his best count they sank twenty-three English warships and badly damaged four forts and three shore batteries as they departed. The last seven warships he came close to struck their colors and surrender as the NAU ships approached. Roger considered removing their crews and sinking them but decided not to do so. He felt England would need the ships to defend herself from the French and Spanish. Chapter 13 before they returned to America Roger crossed the channel and sailed into Brest where he sold the cargo and his merchantmen. While they did not manage to buy or trade for any English goods or material, the French goods were a fine quality, including some wine. The profits from the trip would easily pay for all the expenses and leave a tidy amount for the NAU. One of the other purposes of the trip was to open trade with other nations and France was their second intended stop. They succeeded in this goal. The French anxious to establish friendly relations with a nation that could apparently sink English ships at will. Of course a second reason for the trip was to impress Europeans with the technological abilities of the NAU. Roger believed his little skirmish with the English and the visit to France had successfully done this. In addition to the good wine and brandy Roger traded for he loaded up with some manufactured metal objects such as hinges, pokers and so forth. He really didn't need some of the crudely manufactured items, but he did want the metal He managed to obtain some lead and copper items also. He left a list of items the NAU would trade for and passed the word they were accepting qualified emigrants as well. All in all, Roger was well pleased with his visit to France. on the day they left Brest Roger consulted with his staff. They decided they had enough fuel in the bunkers to make a small detour to Spain. Roger wanted to. Show the flag. As well as to impress the Spanish with the small fleet he had with him. Of course, the Spanish were already somewhat familiar with Rogers' ship's capability from their fights in and around Florida. Even knowing they were already conversant with his fleet's capabilities, he wanted to make a port visit or two to impress upon them that his fledgling nation had a long reach. Besides, a little show of force never hurt anything. Of course, they needed to set up trade agreements and pass the word on colonists and available trade in the new NAU as widely as possible. The small fleet made a rapid transit to Spain and made port in Aviles the hometown of the man who founded St. Augustine, Florida. After a short visit they then moved on to Santander before returning to the NAU. At each stop a small amount of trading was done, and a large amount of showing off their ships was accomplished. Of course during the shore Leave Rogers sailors made sure to pass the word on the damage to the English fleet during their visit to England. Finally, his short term goals for the trip complete, Roger ordered his small fleet to return home. Roger's ships made better time on the trip home since they did not have to travel at the most fuel efficient speeds. After they returned, he released his warships to their normal duties of patrolling his coastline. His merchant ship was released to trade with the Caribbean islands, and even to make a run back to Europe. She had two smaller caliber guns on board. It might take more than one shot to sink an attacking ship, but if she could not sink it, she could always outrun it. One of the naval patrols taken north from Savannah in July of 1607 found three English ships anchored in the James River. They were all floating cargo, and there was a small fort taking shape on the shore. This time the NAU ship was the NAUS Enterprise, FF2. Dot as the Enterprise moved into the harbor, frenzied activity could be seen on board the English ships. People on shore could be seen running away from the coast. While the Enterprise was still well out of range of the now old fashioned English cannon, they were ran out the gunports. Enterprise moved into easy hailing distance of the ships. The captain of the Enterprise moved to the bridge wing and addressed the apparent flagship through his megaphone. You are in North American Union waters and apparently engaged in an invasion of our country. I demand you surrender at once. A man dressed in much finery moved to the rail of the quarterdeck of the ship and replied, You well know this is English land. It is you, sir, who are guilty of invasion, nay, even of piracy we are engaged in the king's business here. Now be off with you sir before I lose my patience with you. No sir, you must know King Roger informed your king that any attempt to colonize America would be considered an act of war and would be met with force. This is your last chance to surrender without violence. I demand you immediately surrender your ships and remove the personnel on shore. As soon as your people are on board your ships you must leave our waters. If you do not comply with my request I will be forced to attack." The English dandy turned to a man beside him. The captain of Enterprise could not hear what was said but almost immediately two things occurred. A volley of musket fire roared out toward the Enterprise and soon after the first broadside of cannon fire followed. Enterprise returned fire and sank the three ships with one shell each. She did not bother hunting for survivors. The Enterprise made a rapid trip back to Savannah where she reported the invasion. Roger immediately ordered a company of soldiers onto a merchant ship. Two days later the troop transport and two FF's made their way down river and headed for the attempt to colonize Jamestown. Their orders were to capture Jamestown and imprison any English soldiers or sailors found. Roger sent his oldest son Prince Roger to take over as governor of the settlement. Before he left King Roger said, "Roger, I need you and your staff to be careful when you interview the colonists. We want to keep those who will make our new nation stronger and send back those who came here to live on others." I am leaving the decision on who is returned to England and on who is allowed to remain here in America to you and your staff. Do your utmost to keep qualified tradesmen, educated and skilled men. Return the leeches such as the gentry unwilling to work for a living and the so-called ministers that wish to repress their flocks instead of guide them to a better life. All English officials should be returned without fail. Do your utmost to entice the soldiers and sailors to emigrate. We need both of those skills desperately. Also— As much as it pains me to do so, you must be positive no one who does not wish to return is sent back to England. If that means a husband wishes to return to England and his wife does not, you must not let him force her to accompany him. As soon as you have completed the interviews you need to move the colony to the area we have selected for the new town of Williamsburg. It will be a much better place for settlement than the location of Jamestown. I am willing to make an exception for the gentry if you are convinced they will be of benefit to us. You can make a recommendation to me to allow Gentry to stay. I will make the final decision on a case-by-case basis, however. Those who are willing to pledge allegiance to the NAU and study to become citizens will be given a chance to remain. Two weeks after Prince Roger left for Jamestown, King Roger obtained his first report. It arrived in one of the small observation aircraft that routinely patrolled the coasts of the NAU. Prince Roger had already prepared a rudimentary landing strip at Williamsburg and the light aircraft made use of it. The first report that came to him from Jamestown caused Roger to smile. Roger's offer to allow sailors and soldiers to immigrate if they wanted to join his forces or colony was met with great pleasure by the English enlisted men. The officers mostly refused the offer and tried to prevent their soldiers and sailors from defecting. More than one officer found himself locked up when he attempted to prevent the defections. Roger was now 46 calendar years old. His small nation consisted of four states with European settlers. To the best of his ability he decided to keep the boundaries he knew from his uptime childhood. There were exceptions. Virginia was one state there was no West Virginia. Both Carolinas were or would be consolidated into one state when they were settled more fully. They did show up on his rudimentary maps already as Carolina. He had plans to make use of the much better harbor in what would be named Charleston as soon as he could find settlers to build the city. Eventually Charleston would become a major seaport and navy base. Before news of the defeat at Jamestown and sinking the three colony ships reached England, Roger gained almost 500 new colonists. He and his appointed governor of Virginia decided to only send 23 of the colonists back to England as unfit to live in the NAU. In his original timeline, only 60 of those 500 were to survive the winter of 1609 to 1610. Roger felt he could keep almost all of them alive with his technology and assistance. This gave him a good jump start for populating the state of Virginia. Admittedly these colonists did not have the modern education Roger needed, and many of them could not or would not learn the things Roger's schools were teaching the young. Many of the colonists would continue to be mere laborers but Roger needed them too. Many of them could be trained to do some of the simpler things a civilization needs such as operate wagons, farm, work in warehouses, and so forth. The children however would be given the education they would need to succeed and would rapidly become important members of the population. The infant and child mortality rate was already lower by far than normal for this time period because of Roger's healthcare capability. Just rudimentary cleanliness and the proper positioning of outhouses helped immensely. Add to that his advances in medical care and the development of penicillin and the use of sulfa as antibiotics meant many children and even adults who would have died now did not and became long-lived assets of his nation. That first report to Roger contained a list of immediately needed medicines, food and building materials. Most of what was requested was already prepositioned on the docks for shipment to Williamsburg. Over the course of the summer a secure and, for the time, comfortable settlement was built for the new town of Williamsburg. When the colonists saw the quality of goods offered them and the benevolence of the government, they rapidly became staunch supporters of Roger and the NAU. They were in awe of the tight construction for their homes and the fine steel stoves provided for heat. The improved medical care available to Roger's population ensured the children from the normal high birth rate survived in large numbers. The population of his young nation continued to grow almost exponentially. News of the fantastic nation in America spread across Europe and Roger found immigrants begging to get into the NAU so they could build a better life. The population grew faster and faster. Schools were flooded with immigrants learning the ways of their new home for the first three years after arriving all immigrants over the age of four went to school half a day. After noon, those over the age of 16 worked for five hours to support themselves. I, in order to better patrol the coasts, Roger formed an air force rather than depend on the civilian air he had used up to this time. He used some of the smaller aircraft they had been using for mail delivery for coastal patrols. These aircraft used some of his smaller gasoline engines. As the incidence of ships from England violating NAU waters increased, Roger was forced to build fighter-bomber aircraft. Within 3 years of the first flight of his fighter-bomber, Roger had a small air force consisting of 30 patrol/observation aircraft and 40 combat aircraft. Roger kept the air technology for military use primarily, but he did not proscribe the use in civilian occupations. His primary reason for limiting civilian use of aircraft was to better conserve vital resources. He did not want resources expended unnecessarily for frivolous purposes as had been done uptime. Every larger settlement ended up with an airport for observation aircraft, fighters and government transports. The range of the small aircraft was still lonely, about 200 miles round-trip or four hours. Settlements began to rise up along the coast near the military airfields and forts. If the settlement had a good harbor, ships from several nations began stopping for trade. To Roger's surprise many of these ships contained people from foreign lands who wanted to immigrate to the NAU. Almost all immigrants were accepted if they were willing to return to school and update their abilities so they would fit into Roger's technological society.by1612 Roger's treatment of the English so angered the king he sent an armada of 30 warships and 2,000 soldiers to teach Roger a lesson. Somehow, this invading force arrived undetected near what was Charleston, South Carolina in another timeline. They began the march south intent on leveling Savannah and imprisoning the upstart that had given England such trouble. The invading army was spotted by a patrolling aircraft perhaps two days march south of their landing. They were making a difficult journey because of all the small streams entering the various bays between their landing site and Savannah. If the commander was lucky they could make eight or ten miles a day because of the marshes and difficulty moving their supply trains. Many days they traveled a much shorter distance. Roger had his small air force keep the column under observation while he made plans for intercepting and defeating them. He immediately sent a frigate to Charleston to deal with the Armada Dot on the fifth day of their march to Savannah the English stumbled across one of Roger's roads. Since it was going in the direction they wanted to go they began following it southward. Upon hearing that Roger smiled to himself. He sent Bear Stalker and three companies of soldiers to ambush the approaching English. After he decided on the location of the ambush, Bear Stalker built firing positions and settled in to wait on the advancing English. Even with the better road it took the English four more days to reach the ambush site. When the advancing army came into sight Bear Stalker and his senior commanders stood on the road to meet them, the English colonel leading the advancing forces rode to meet the strangely uniformed men blocking his way. After he stopped his prancing horse in front of the four men confronting him, the colonel said, Who are you and why do you block my way? I am Brigadier General Bear Stalker of the North American Union. My king warned your king that unauthorized landings of colonists or troops would be considered an act of war. I am here to accept your surrender for violating our sovereignty and invading our country. The English colonel laughed and said, You have gall, anyway. I demand you surrender in the name of the king. We are sent to put down the rebellion your so-called king has made against his majesty King James I and England. Bear Stalker glared up at the colonel and said, If you do not surrender your command immediately I have been authorized to use force to compel surrender. The English colonel laughed uproariously and spluttered. Never. Surely you jest. The English army surrender to a rabble led by an ignorant savage with delusions of grandeur? Oh, I say. This is hilarious. The colonel turned his horse and, still laughing, moved back to his column of troops. As he rode toward his soldiers the colonel wiped tears of laughter from his face and said to his second in command. Can you believe the gall of that damn Indian? He acted as if he thought he was as good as I. We shall teach him a lesson he will not soon forget. When the colonel arrived at the head of his column shouts were heard and they began moving into formation to attack in line as was the custom in those days. As soon as the line was formed the soldiers began marching toward the NAU positions. The road was narrow and the woods dense, so their line became almost impossible to maintain almost immediately. Bear Stalker watched in disgust for a moment— then he and his men moved back to their positions. As the English continued marching toward their positions Bear Stalker ordered one volley of fire as a warning. When the English heard the fire, they immediately stopped marching. The first rank kneeled and aimed their muskets toward NAU positions. The second rank remained standing. The NAU soldiers heard the commands. First rank fire. A volley of musket balls was fired toward the positions of the NAU. The smoke partly obscured the enemy soldiers for a moment. Flashes of movement were seen as the first rank began reloading. Then was heard. Second rank fire. Another volley of fire rippled toward the NAU positions. After the second volley the English began marching toward NAU positions once again. Bearstalker turned to his junior leaders and said, Open fire at will. Have your soldiers aim for their legs. We will try to minimize casualties first off. If they do not stop we will have to fire into their bodies. If they persist in fighting after being wounded we will have to kill them. In less than 15 minutes over one-third of the English soldiers were wounded and out of the fight. The remainder surrendered or took off running back down the road in the direction from whence they came. When the NAU soldiers moved to secure their prisoners they found 46 dead men and 643 wounded. They captured 416 prisoners. The remaining soldiers and the colonel were in full retreat. Bearstalker sent a company of his soldiers after them. Later that day after another short battle the NAU soldiers captured the remaining English soldiers. During the final battle another 113 were killed and injured, while the land battle went on the NAU frigate arrived at Charleston and made short work of the armada. That confrontation could not even be considered a battle. Within 15 minutes of arriving all but seven English warships were sunk. The English merchant ships and troop transports all surrendered and were captured. After surviving sailors were picked up, the surviving ships were convoyed back to Savannah where they were interred pending resolution of the conflict. Bear Stalker moved his prisoners back to the camp outside Savannah, set aside as a POW compound, and reported to King Roger. He took the surviving but wounded English colonel with him. After questioning the colonel, Roger decided to let two of the captured ships return to England with the colonel and admiral aboard. As a gesture of goodwill, he also returned many senior officers. He provided a list of survivors also. Roger retained all wounded because his medicine gave them a much better chance of surviving their wounds. This time the message he sent to the king with the returned officers was abrupt. It was insulting. It was also very factual. Roger told the English king he had one choice. They could live and trade in peace or Roger would continue the fight and conquer England. After the admiral and captain returned to England it was over a year before there was a return message. One lone English frigate sailed into Savannah Harbour. She carried Sir George Summers as ambassador to the new nation. He and King Roger spent the next three weeks negotiating a treaty for the two nations. This treaty covered trade, immigration, and conflict resolution. Without so stating, it tacitly deeded the entire North American continent to the NAU. The frigate returned to England with its crew and the very few soldiers that opted to return home. The balance of the soldiers opted to stay in the NAU and become immigrants to the great anger of their commanders. Chapter 14 Over the course of the next nine years Roger's country continued to grow. He stopped building new naval ships when he had six steel frigates, but they continued to build metal merchant ships and patrol boats. To his pleasure his engineers began to improve his steam engines and were working on diesel engines large enough to power the ships. Tankers were on the drawing boards to accompany his small fleet and refuel them. His ships had the capability of burning wood to produce steam in the off-chance they exceeded the range of travel his fuel bunkers would support. All of the merchantmen were armed with at least two naval cannon and modern semi automatic rifles. As the young nation expanded along the coast so did the Navy presence. Each settlement also contained a small army unit comprised primarily of Native Americans but also consisting of some of the younger whites and the soldier emigrants. There was also a small airfield near every large settlement. The aircraft were used for observation and mail delivery. One or two Air Force planes armed with small guns and bombs were stationed at the seacoast airports. By now Roger was certain he had split or forked the timelines when he was sent into the past by whatever means had sent him there. It was already obvious that history, as he remembered it was no longer occurring. I in his new timeline every child was required to attend school until the age of majority which was sixteen years of age. In that time the majority of them attained a level of education analogous to that of a bachelor's degree from Roger's time. By the time the child was 10 years old they possessed the equivalent of an uptime high school diploma and chose their life's work path then continued their education. Of course many children chose to go into the trades so their education followed the pathway that would enhance their performance in their chosen occupation whether that was business, agriculture, medicine, mining, manufacturing or any other of the important occupations. The children who chose to go into the military began their military training at age 14. Of course this was the formal training. Living in the society they lived in they had already mastered much of the basics such as camouflage, basic unarmed combat, and weapons qualification. Their formal military training only honed those skills and taught tactics, basic military subjects, and the laws of warfare. Roger kept his patrols out in case some of the colonization attempts he was familiar with from his timeline still occurred. From this point on many of the events from the history Roger remembered did not occur. After the treaty England gave up attempts to colonize America. England began treating people and ships from the NAU just as they would those from any other country. The NAU grew and prospered. The local populations were still assimilated into the NAU peacefully if they so desired. If they thought they were annihilated. The NAU became known for its enlightened society and for its universities. Scientific discoveries came rapidly based on the jumpstart available from the vehicles and the lone aircraft left at Old Birmingham. Many countries were clamoring for the NAU's new inventions, particularly those that could be converted to use as weapons of war. Roger tried to keep that technology transfer to a minimum, but with only marginal success. By the time Roger was 80 years old in 1631, his small nation was doing well. He had accepted several thousand settlers from England, France, Spain, the Scandinavian countries, and many from Germany. Surprising no one, the new colonists were all happy to be there and anxious to learn. His standing army and navy were strong enough that no country cared to anger or attack the NAU. In fact, it had been several years since any attacks were directed at them. Roger's factories and mines were producing at a stellar rate. His technology was the envy of the world. Other nations sent emissaries to negotiate trade agreements and treaties. They almost bankrupted themselves purchasing the items of technology Roger was willing to export. Every housewife wanted the labor-saving devices Roger's factories now turned out. Every husband wanted the better tools and machinery Roger's factories produced and above all they lusted for modern weapons. Roger refused to sell his modern weapons and ships but he did export his transportation technology and even steam engines. With this technology the NAU continued to grow and prosper, becoming the strongest power in the world even if its navy and army were small by many standards. The Union now covered the entire North American continent and was pushing south into South America. There had been some problems with the Indians in the western lands but not as many as in Roger's original timeline. The NAU kept their treaties and did not steal from or disrespect the Indian enough to anger them. Roger hoped by the time settlers made their way west in significant numbers the Indians would be amenable to peaceful coexistence. Nau explorers, merchants, and military ships were running all over the world's oceans bringing NAU technology and ideas to the world. The ships returned laden with exotic goods and spices, making the NAU even richer. Colonists began arriving from China and settling into many of the traditional businesses. Any race was welcomed if they wanted to assimilate into NAU society, and if they came voluntarily. Every slave ship was captured and the slaves returned to their port of origin. Soon none came to North American shores. Of course very few Africans came to North America as colonists or immigrants either because they did not have the ships or the inclination to do so. King Roger I died in his sleep August 21st. 1644 at age 84. His dynasty continued with his first-born natural child ascending to the throne to follow in his footsteps. Almost every responsible job in the NAU was held by a child, grandchild, or great-grandchild of King Roger I. However, that is not to say children of others could not and did not move into positions of power. Many of the public positions fell to others' children. Roger's descendants did govern many of the states and were spread throughout the military. By the time Roger died, his small nation was working on space exploration technology. Plans were to send a man to the moon by 1750. A. Astra per aspera. The end. This podcast is part of the Erotica Podcast Network. Visit the other channels for more stories with a different focus. Support us on Patreon to make requests for subjects you would love to hear. Thank you to those who have already reached out.